This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. George M. Marsden is a Francis A. McEnany Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Notre Dame. He holds degrees from Haverford College and Westminster Theological Seminary and a doctorate from Yale University. He is the author or editor of more than a dozen books and is one of the most influential figures in evangelical scholarship and in the Evangelical Academy of the Last Generation. He is one of those indispensable writers, scholars, analysts, and teachers for the entire evangelical movement. The titles of his influential books include Fundamentalism in American Culture, The Soul of the American University, and his magisterial biography of Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, A Life. His latest work, published by Basic Books, is The Twilight of the American Enlightenment, the 1950s, and the Crisis of Liberal Belief. I'm eagerly looking forward to this conversation with George Marsden. He is such an incredibly insightful historian. And he writes from inside the evangelical movement. He's written about the history of Fuller Theological Seminary. And basically, he's covered the waterfront of American intellectual and American Protestant and evangelical life from the period of the founding until the present. But now it goes back to the 1950s. I find that very curious. And so I'm going to ask him why. Professor Marsden, you entitled your book, The Twilight of the American Enlightenment. I think virtually every one of those major words is important, but let's work backwards. When you're talking about the American Enlightenment, what are you really talking about here? I'm talking about uh, America having been founded uh, as a nation during the 18th century uh, when in what Enlightenment ideas were the dominant ideas which involved uh, a high trust in reason, a high trust in the individual. So uh, we talk about individual rights uh, and, the li- and, and the like. And uh, those ideas have left an indelible impression on America. And the American Enlightenment is uh, different from let's say, the French Enlightenment, in that the American Enlightenment uh, was also friendly to Christianity, that uh, much of the uh, Enlightenment uh, had Christian roots. And so, uh, although some Enlightenment uh, figures were uh, not particularly Christian or uh, deists and the like, uh, people who were Orthodox Christians could... uh, adopt a lot of the American Enlightenment ideas. So uh, those ideals were more or less the point of departure for the nation. You know, in reading your book, I had so many different uh, avenues of fruitful thought. The subtitle of your book, of course, is The 1950s and the Crisis of Liberal Belief. So to, to kind of summarize your narrative, at least in some sense, you're talking about uh, the distance between the time of the American founding when those Enlightenment ideals were uh, supported by and accompanied by an overwhelming Protestant sensibility and worldview. Uh, Fast-forwarding to the 1950s, when at least amongst the secular elites, that, uh, that official Protestantism had passed, certainly with its, uh, it, its theological content. But that, that led me to want to ask you a question. Uh, you've written so much about uh, American intellectual life and uh, a magisterial biography of Jonathan Edwards, after all. But it made me want to go back and ask you, when you look at the American Enlightenment 
And uh, you're right, the, the, the entire field of intellectual history now speaks of enlightenments in, in the plural rather than just in the singular. And certainly the, uh, the English-speaking enlightenment, of which the American enlightenment was a part, was far friendlier to, uh, to Christian theism. But it made me wonder, and I just want to ask you, just to what extent was that American enlightenment friendly to a rather, uh, well, uh, evacuated form of Protestantism? In other words, how much theology— how, how much theism was actually in that official predominating Protestantism at the time? Uh, I guess the best way to answer that would be to say that uh, a theologically substantial Protestantism was not at all essential to the dominant political, social ideals of of the Enlightenment. Some people who were uh, traditional Christians uh, uh, bought into the Enlightenment ideals and, and blended a traditional Christianity with them. So you get all uh, sort of all points on the spectrum from uh, people being uh, deists or, or uh, very skeptical about traditional Christianity to Orthodox Christian believers, uh, and then everything in between, and probably uh, most of the... the uh, American leaders were somewhere in between Orthodox Christianity and 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 and, and deism. So there's a there's sort of a cultural blend uh, that's there that that's pretty hard to identify either with Christianity or with out and out secularism. That, that uh, like a lot of things in life, uh, there's a good bit of ambiguity about it. Well, you wrote very carefully, as you always do. Uh, For instance, you wrote to almost everyone, speaking of that era, agreed that Protestant Christianity provided an important support for the principles upon which the Republic had been founded. And uh, that's a very chaste sentence. It it, it doesn't overclaim, and and I think it's certainly demonstrably true. Uh, Virtually everyone agreed that Protestant Christianity was a necessary intellectual support for those principles. But then you fast-forward us to the 1950s, the, the main uh, era of your concern in this really fascinating book, and, and something has dramatically changed. You have people, especially amongst the elites, looking at the larger culture who want to maintain those Enlightenment ideals but no longer have any confidence at all in that Protestant worldview that helped to, uh, to support those, those very ideals they wanted to continue. Yes, yeah, so that's what was fascinating to me. Uh, and it was the era that I, I grew up into as a college student in, in the 50s, uh, to realize that that era uh, was one in which uh, leading intellectual figures in America were still affirming the founding ideals, and they still believed that the United States uh, stood on a, a foundation of shared beliefs that uh, could provide a, a, a nice, consensus for everyone to buy into, but uh, they no longer had uh, the traditional foundation for those beliefs. And so uh, they, 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 they had the conclusions, but not, not the foundations that they rested on. So it was a, it was a sort of house of cards kind sure. of situation that, that was ready to collapse uh, when the the winds of the 1960s begin to to blow. That that kind of uh, set of consensus ideals pretty much falls apart. Well, you've been a conversation partner uh, intellectually and bibliographically uh, for virtually all of my adult life, 
And uh, I say that with, with a word of tremendous appreciation and indebtedness to you. And uh, I sat down with this most recent book with a tremendous sense of expectation. And the book surprised me in terms of, of what I found within it. Because, you know, George, I'll tell you, I've read virtually every one of the major works you deal with of these very important figures. And yet what I had not seen, and I, I was born in 1959, so I came along later. What I had not seen is how all of this fits together with, uh, w- with a tremendous sense of anxiety and, uh, and what I would describe as a, as, as a rather baseless optimism about the, the possibility of, of hanging these Enlightenment ideals on a basically secular superstructure. But I'll tell you, the main thing I thought as I read your book was I understand my college professors in a whole new way. Because this is the intellectual context in which they cut their teeth. And uh, so, I mean, my professors were assigning to me Rogers and Skinner and Lippmann and, and Niebuhr. And, and, and I was reading all of this, but I was reading it as someone born in 1959, not as someone who was doing doctoral work at the very time that these, uh, these books were so dominant. And, and that goes back to the organization man and, and uh, the man in the gray flannel suit and all the rest of this. Uh, I think your book uh, is a tremendously important window into a particular moment, a very important moment in American intellectual history. So I just want to ask you again, in the 1950s, what drew you there? What was the, what was the intellectual focus or crisis that led you to say, I, I want to invest this much work in what was going on in the 1950s? Uh, it was partly a personal quest uh, that, as I said, that, that's when I came of age, more or less intellectually, I graduated from college in 1959, and uh, so, and 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 I was headed toward uh, studying uh, religion and American culture, and so my first introductions to what is American culture like uh, came from these people, and and they had uh, many insights that one can. Appreciate. They were worried about uh, some of the things that were p- proper to worry about, about what would be the effects of mass culture, what would be the effects of uh, television on uh, on higher culture. Uh, they they were uh, worried about uh, uh, conformity, uh, that that everything would be driven by technology, and uh, that this would crush the individual and and like that. And these are things that were. Uh, worth talking about. Uh, so it was interesting to me, after a half a century, to go back and revisit uh, that time and see how it looks um, in that perspective. I mean, at, at, in, in, in the 1950s uh, themselves, to uh, a young person such as myself, these writers seem very formidable, and it's interesting, uh, half century later, uh, they they look very dated, and it's a good lesson to uh, to think about about uh, you know any contemporary thought of uh, how it will look in 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 another half century, and not to not to take the latest thing too seriously. So that was one of my uh, motives, and then the the uh, part of that motive is exactly what you said regarding your uh, college professors. Uh, I. Uh, uh, actually, I was teaching. A, uh, I was visiting at uh, Harvard Divinity School for a year, and I was teaching a course, which was very interesting to do there, uh, on uh, the role of religion in American higher education. And it struck me how much uh, 
the intellectual assumptions of uh, academics in the later 20th century was shaped, was still being shaped by uh, assumptions uh, that had developed in the 1950s, particularly the assumptions that secular views ought to be preferred uh, over uh, religious views, and that, and, and, and that in turn had some sort of uh, idea that uh, all right-thinking people ought to be able to agree on uh, certain basic uh, rational principles that had some sort of scientific uh, basis behind them, and that even though uh, in the 60s and the 70s American culture moved in the direction of uh, really intellectual fragmentation, uh, when it came to thinking about religion, uh, those sorts of ideals were still pretty much uh, the dominant ideals, the ideal that, well, we ought to really think uh, scientifically about that, and uh, everybody ought to agree that uh, religious ideas are, 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 are passe. So uh, I'm just interested in the uh, sort of the irony that uh, that that those, those sorts of ideals had persisted into the later 20th, 20th century, early 21st century. You know, it's a fascinating era. I was born in 1959, the year you graduated from college. And, uh, you know, the names that you deal with in your book were the people who were and not the common conversation uh, in terms of America in the 1970s when I was a teenager, but they really did set the stage for that conversation. And these were huge and hugely influential public intellectuals, the the Reinhold Niebuhrs, the Walter Lippmanns, uh, the Arthur Schlesinger Jr. You go down the list. You know, at least part of what I felt in reading your book was a certain wistfulness for a time when the American public conversation was actually so dominated by people uh, uh, who had inadequate worldviews, uh, by my estimation, but nonetheless were serious men, and they were men, as you point out, of ideas. I, I feel the absence of that kind of robust intellectual conversation, fueled by crisis, though it was, that, that nonetheless at least was a serious engagement with ideas. I, I compare the 1950s to our, our present time, and I, I, I think we're missing something. Yes, and uh, the... Uh, one of the things we're missing is that then there was a, a, a real national conversation, and and there was a sense that uh, people from uh, diverse points of view could uh, disagree on on some basic things, but nonetheless enter into the same uh, the same contra- uh, conversation. So I, I, I begin with a, a discussion in 1959. Uh, that was published in a Life magazine on the national purpose, and they had, I think it was nine leading uh, uh, public figures speak about that. One of the figures is Billy Graham. Uh, another one is Adelaide Stevenson, who had run for uh, president uh, twice as, as, as on the Democratic uh, ticket. And Walter Lippmann uh, was, was there. Uh, Scotty Reston uh, was uh, a... a uh, columnist and for New York Times was there. They were all uh, more or less on the same team. Uh, they, they thought of themselves as, uh, how should we guide America? Now, it was a, a team made up of all white males, and uh, since then that's, that, 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 that's something that's uh, been, been modified. But uh, it was also uh, more possible to have a, national conver- a civil national conversation 
uh, than it is today. Now that, uh, when I say that, I have to uh, also qualify that to say there was a lot of uh, political tension in the 1950s. Sure. There was uh, all that strong uh, anti-communism, McCarthyism, and uh, very, you know, there was some of the same kind of uh, strong political you know, and, and, and uh, debate over civil rights and the like. There were strong political divisions that divided people, but there still was, was a national conversation. And uh, in that conversation, one could have uh, Christian thinkers, and Reinhold Niebuhr is the most, uh, the most prominent, that he could still uh, presume to be speaking for where should American culture uh, be headed and, and try, try to bring in uh, his, his version of Christian moral views as, 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 as a guide. And people from all sorts of faiths and, and non-faith uh, paid attention to Niebuhr and thought, well, this is, uh, this is a good way of shaping the, the culture in general. You know, in terms of those public intellectuals, uh, they not only had this uh, enormous uh, influence in the society, and actually in both parties throughout virtually every level of the political process and, and the larger culture, they, they also had friends in the media. And, and you give considerable focus in your book to Henry Luce, uh, who, yes. uh, whose media empire included Fortune and, and Life and, most importantly, Time magazine. But I, I want you to describe uh, Henry Luce uh, theologically, because I think this is a very important issue. In the 1950s, the Christians who were a part of that conversation, those who were publicly identified as Christians in that conversation, were generally, with the exception of someone like Billy Graham, those who represented uh, a mainline Protestantism, which was then very much uh, not only an ascendancy but domination, but uh, but also a, a modernist understanding of Christianity that basically uh, sought to minimize theological truth claims in order to maximize cultural influence. Yes, and and I found Henry Luce very uh, very illuminating, uh, and what was particularly illuminating to me was Henry, Henry Luce uh, was born to uh, conservative Presbyterian missionaries in China. Uh, and uh, so he grew up with that uh, conservative Presbyterian outlook. He was born in the, in the 1890s. Uh, he went to Yale in uh, the, the teens when it was still uh, had a strong evangelical uh, dimension to it. But like a lot of people of that generation, he lost his traditional faith, but he became the quintessential Protestant modernist and uh, essentially made the American nation his church. And uh, he, he saw his mission as to uh, guide America as a, as a leading publicist in, the, in what he called the American century and to uh, keep religion as one of the dimensions of uh, American life. But he didn't really care all that much particularly what the religion was. He just thought that there was a need for some kind of theism. And in a way, he was a very enlightened figure in this, in, in this sense, that he believed there was a need for theism to provide a, a basis for uh, a moral law that, that should be guiding the nation. But he, was, uh, he, he, he didn't really uh, care about traditional Christianity, about the, the role of Christ. It was, it was more just a... Uh, 
I mean, it was a true theological modernism uh, where the object of religious belief is guiding modern culture and making uh, a, 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 a culture that would be a good, uh, a better culture. And, 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 and it's Ameri- he saw America, the American century as a time when America was going to be leading the world, and, and he was uh, rightly concerned that there should be uh, moral values involved in that, but, but he, didn't, uh, uh, he didn't ground it in any, any particulars of uh, traditional Christianity. You know, this conversation with Professor Marsden reminds me that when you think of the present, it's hard to come up with a handful of public intellectuals who can singularly and together establish the intellectual conversation of this country, insofar, by the way, as there is one. One of the things in retrospect is that the 1950s had a far more robust, intentionally and uh, and substantially intellectual conversation, especially amongst the elites and what so-called middle-brow culture than what we find today. But what we find today is an intellectual anarchy, even where there is an intellectual content. There is no set of authorities who can simply speak to these issues and to American public life and have an immediate response of at least a a seasoned consideration of what they have to say. But those men, and they were men, as George Marsden points out, back in the 1950s, included figures such as Arthur Schlesinger Jr., Henry Luce, Reinhold Niebuhr, Paul Tillich, and George Kennan, and a whole list of others who could basically talk about just about anything and get a sizable hearing, a sizable audience. Henry Luce, as we were just discussing, is one of those very interesting figures because not only did he have his own voice, but he became the platform through his massive publishing empire of many others to whom he gave that kind of intellectual platform. To be on the cover of Time magazine was to land in the place of the greatest cultural recognition by the mainstream that is imaginable in America in the 1950s. And he who published that magazine helped to set the agenda for the entire nation. And Henry Luce expected and intended to do just that. One of the men who appeared on the cover of his magazine was a theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr. And that gets us into another dimension to this conversation. What do we learn from those like Reinhold Niebuhr, who seem to have such influence in this tumultuous period of the 1950s? talk about the public intellectuals of the 1950s, uh, one of the points very well made in your book is that theologians were included in that conversation. They, they were not predominant, but they were included. On the cover of Time magazine, two theologians of that era had emerged. One was Paul Tillich, and you really don't deal with him much uh, within the book, and I, I think that's, uh, that's justified. But the predominant uh, influence was that of Reinhold Niebuhr one of the two Niebuhr brothers, and uh, I am fascinated myself with Niebuhr and am currently uh, involved in a writing project and a lecture series on him. And uh, so your book arrived at a very timely moment, and and I think you've captured the essence of Reinhold Niebuhr in terms of his cultural and intellectual influence. Here's someone who was a theological modernist who nonetheless was the most influential theologian in America probably of the 20th century, not, not just of the 1950s, and uh, and he was one who had enormous influence amongst the secular elites because even though he no longer believed in the virgin birth or the physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and some of his own students didn't think he even believed in a personal God, 
He did believe in human sinfulness. Why in the world, in the 1950s, did the category of original sin become such an indispensable issue, at least for many uh, amongst those intellectual elites who no longer held to any other major Christian beliefs? But they did have, largely thanks to Niebuhr, or at least by his uh, codification and expression, uh, a, a reaffirmation of the fact that sin, original sin, is a, is a real problem. Yeah, and that that's an interesting question. The, the, I think it's it's related to America had a tremendous tradition of optimism, which was reinforced uh, by world by the victory in World War II and overcoming the depression. So 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 uh, there's there's a lot of uh, trust that we can do it, and uh, that we should simply. Uh, trust in the good in human nature. A lot of the modernist religion uh, was uh, reinforcing that 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 sort of ideal, and and any individual can do anything. That kind of ideal, which is still around, and we can be listen to the Olympics. So you'll you'll hear athletes who will say, "Well, it just proves that anybody can do whatever they want," which is truly false, but <laughs> clearly false. But anyway, but that ideal. Uh, those very optimistic ideals about human nature were so prevalent in the culture, yet uh, thoughtful people thought about what had just happened uh, with Hitler and the Holocaust, uh, with the the, uh, the the rise of the USSR and 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 the mass executions there, uh, and so uh, Niebuhr comes along and says, uh, "Wait a minute." You know, human nature is indelibly flawed. It's deeply flawed. It's flawed at its very base, and 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 this is really what original sin means. That uh, even the very uh, best things that that humans try to do uh, lead to uh, the worst sorts of uh, atrocities. That uh, the uh, you know too confident sense of justice can lead to uh, injustice, and that's just what happens. In totalitarian states, that, that, that they are, are so convinced that they're in the right that they do uh, incredibly wrong things, and that Niebuhr says is human nature, and 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 that really uh, just an insight that uh, has a lot of truth to it. So it uh, it resonated with a lot of people, and it doesn't really depend on any theological claims so much as a uh, an insight into. Uh, the, the the Christian account of human nature that uh, in fact uh, we are all in our natural condition deeply flawed and 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 and, and Niebuhr uh, ran with that and and related it to the cultural situation. Right. He thought that, uh, for instance, Genesis three was a mythopoetic way of describing that uh, that that permanent problem of human fallenness and and, and sinfulness. Of right. course. He also uh, rather deftly tried to remove the responsibility for that sinfulness away from humanity and towards the structures of, uh, of human civilization. The, the, you know, the famous title of his Gifford lecture is Moral Man and Immoral Society. Uh, if only it were so simple as that. Uh, as it turns out, uh, the scriptural worldview reminds us that uh, the society is simply writ large humanity. It's a, it, it's, it's a problem in every single one of us. But, you know, you raise so many really, really pertinent points. In dealing with Niebuhr, it's, it's, it's tempting just to kind of camp out here for just a little bit. 
For instance, uh, Niebuhr's influence, it seems to me, had a great deal to do with the Cold War and with the fact that he had been proved right in one sense by World War II. His, his realism, his, uh, well-defined as Christian realism, understood that sometimes force can only be stopped by force. A uh, famous argument with his brother, Richard Niebuhr, at, uh, at Yale, uh, that, that debate in the pages of the Christian century before America's involvement in World War II. Uh, didn't, didn't Reinhold Niebuhr really emerge in this post-war period with enormous intellectual credibility because he had been right when so many others have been wrong, uh, and and only even the vestigial Christianity that was in his understanding of original sin, only that could explain Hitler and the atrocities of World War II and the reality of the of, of the crisis of the Cold War itself. Yes, I think that that's exactly right, that uh, a lot of uh, mainline Protestants, uh, Protestant liberals and modernists had been uh, pacifists before World War II and Niebuhr's realism challenged that and said there, there, there is a need to meet force with force and so forth, as you just said. And so he and 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 then Americans faced with the USSR and the Cold War uh, and 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 the bomb and and and, and Niebuhr is uh, you know, he resonates with that. With that sort of uh, outlook, where where there, where there uh, is a real need for you know to to uh, to provide some sort of counterforce to uh, what's going on in the rest of the world. Well, with Niebuhr, I, I want to press the question a little bit further with you here. Uh, Niebuhr seemed to believe that his modernist Christianity could actually serve as a substantial platform for the preservation of human values. And yet you document very well the fact that uh, what he thought were simply self-evident values, that, uh, that all right-thinking, uh, intelligent people should come to, actually, even by the time he was writing his most influential works, were no longer held uh, in any secular sense. Uh, and furthermore, you go on to say, at least they were not held universally, but you go on to say that, uh, that, that there was really an absence of any adequate secular substitute uh, for uh, for actually the uh, the superstructure of Christian theology to to hold those values and in other words those values were incredibly imperiled at the very time these elites were trying desperately to hold on to them. Yeah, I think that that, that that's correct, and and that Niebuhr was uh, very insightful in identifying some of the uh, some of the problems, but he he didn't really. Uh, Offer a a a, a, a long you know, a, a larger solution, and uh, that his insights into human behavior could be, as as the so-called atheist for, for Niebuhr demonstrated, his insights into human behavior could be uh, separated from uh, his Christian theology, and and you could just take the insights. Uh, and go with them, but but they were insights into the problem, and uh, the, the, what's striking to me is the degree of I mean, of lack of solution to these these, these problems uh, that there was at the time, and often the solution was simply uh, we need more uh, individuals who trust themselves and and things that uh, like that that didn't really have any uh, any substance to them. 
One of my favorite sentences in your book is this, and I quote, The grand irony of that strategy, speaking of Niebuhr's strategy, was that while Niebuhr himself used it effectively as a way to preserve a public role for the Christian heritage, its subjective qualities made the faith wholly optional and dispensable, end quote. And, and, and right. that to me is, is, is just a paradigmatic portrait of, of really the problem of this mainline modernist Christianity, Protestantism, at the midpoint of the 20th century. It was trying to hold on to things that it had already effectively forfeited. And, and, and most importantly, there is a sense of authority. Uh, and Niebuhr, I guess, believed that, uh, that these public intellectuals could substitute for a theistic authority. People would listen to them. And, and by the way, that also helps this era to make sense to me. Because when you read so many of these works, you read a sense of panic that people aren't listening to us anymore. Uh, that uh, you, amongst the elites, you, you certainly see the fact that, 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 they, that people should be listening to us. They should, they should follow us on our authority. I think this comes through loudly and clearly in this new volume of letters uh, released, uh, the letters of Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. It comes up rather pathetically, as a matter of fact. You know, it, we know the truth, and, and we want to hold to these values, and people just don't listen to us anymore. Uh, it, it seems to me that uh, that that one sentence in your book explains why they had made yeah. the the intellectual superstructure optional. Yeah, and and what, there was an assumption that societies ought to be guided by the intellectuals, which is um, a nice idea, and 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 in a way goes back to the American Enlightenment, where you have an unusual situation that during the time of the American Revolution you have uh, people who some people who were intellectuals who are also guiding the, rev- the, the, the revolution and that's a very unusual uh, sort of time but in in the 1950s uh, there's a sense that these intellectuals have that uh, well we have the we have the most advanced ideas and everyone ought to be listening to us and and then of course uh, most people aren't really uh, Aren't really listening listening to them, but it, but it is an interesting an interesting time that they they, they really thought that they the, they should be guiding um, they should be guiding the whole nation. I want to test something yeah. that came to me reading your book, and that was that the uh, because so many people, uh, including uh, Peter and Bridget Berger and others, uh, Christopher Lash, have written about the, the rise of the expert. You also deal with that here, and and. I think rightly you point to the fact that uh, it was uh, Dr. Benjamin Spock who was probably the expert of all experts in terms of influence here. Yeah. But w- what struck me, George, was this, and that is that uh, that they lost the ability to say, here's where the nation should go. They lost the ability to say, here are these huge truths that should be self-evident and embraced by all, and were reduced to the rather privatized sphere of the family and, and uh, something like uh, raising children to say, uh, this is how you're supposed to do that. And, and, and so Dr. Spock had huge influence, but then, and, and you don't deal with this in your book, but you'll remember during the 1960s, he tried to translate that into huge political influence for the anti-war movement, and, and no one followed yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, but, but it's uh, symptomatic of, of, of the times, what I, I, what I find there is that the two great ideals are trust yourself and trust natural science, trust technology, yes. trust the, the, the scientific expert. And those two ideals don't really fit together very well if, 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 if you think about it. If you're a, 
uh, true individualist, then uh, you're going to be suspicious of scientific ideals and see them as too as, as too regimenting. And uh, so uh, th- there there was uh, a lack of a real coherence in the dominant ideals that were that, that were guiding the culture, and and that uh, the tension between those two comes out in the, in the 1960s uh, as you get uh, uh, radical individualism, uh, people who are following the advice of the 50s that say, you know, let's get away from nonconformity. You get wild nonconformists who then are challenging the military-industrial complex and uh, the uh, you know the technological culture uh, and 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 the like. So you get a, a real split. Down in, in, in American culture, between radical individualism and the scientific, technological side of the culture. Just going back to your your meta narrative, so to speak, here in terms of the book, I want to go back to Niebuhr for just a moment. You, you have a, a really key sentence. You said that uh, Niebuhr was remarkable, and that he was a Protestant theologian who could speak to a wide swath of American liberal culture. Yet he was also speaking at the end of the Protestant era, and for all his brilliance, he was like a candle that burns brightest just before it goes out. That's that's an amazing statement. And then a couple pages later, you write this, uh, speaking of uh, of the confidence of the elites, or at least of the the Christians here, those identified as Christians, such as Niebuhr, on, on how a new consensus could develop. You wrote this. That meant that if Christianity was to regain a substantial public influence, Christians would have to de-emphasize divisive dogmas and emphasize the essential truths and moral teachings that were compatible with progressive scientific thinking and acceptable in a pluralistic setting. Yet, that strategy left unanswered the question of why enlightened progressive Christianity should be privileged over any other teachings, whether secular or religious. And I think that just encapsulates the problem. If you try to have a form of influence, which is Christianity without Christian content, without truth claims, and thus without authority, what you end up with is a situation in which you can find those you're trying to influence turn right around and say, well, then why should we listen to you? Yes, and that, and, and that's exactly what happened, that the, the Protestant establishment was running on momentum, that that it had that uh, Protestantism had been uh, the dominant uh, religion and and dominant uh, in in the culture uh, since since the founding, and in the 1950s, Protestant churches were still uh, very crowded and lots of people were going to church and the like. But there was an assumption uh, there was a mix between I mean some real Christianity there. But there's also a good bit of a religion of the nation and sort of an assumption that there ought to be a uh, one religion that is at the heart of the the, uh, the American nation. And as, as Chesterton has said, that the United States is uh, a nation with the soul of the church. And, and, and is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the... Yeah, yeah, and and so there's 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 the assumption. Well, we still ought to have some sort of religious basis, but it gets as the nation gets more and more secular and more and more diverse, that religious basis becomes vaguer and 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 vaguer, and uh, eventually it simply can't uh, 
it can't hold up. But but uh, Protestant churches were doing so well in the 50s that uh, it was very difficult for uh, people to to realize how close they were to uh, to the end of the era, and that uh, and that that's another interesting thing about. It. Looking back, then it's 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 a it's a sort of lost era. It's uh, you, you know it's, it's a time that you can't really go back to. No, indeed, and uh, you've given us the the best view, I think, intellectually of what was going on there, and and from a perspective that especially I think uh, thoughtful uh, and intellectual evangelical Christians will want to will want to know more about, and then that leads me to to the biggest surprise in your book, so far as I'm concerned, and that is how you ended, because. Frankly, I didn't have any clue how you were going to end this. Uh, once I got into it, about three quarters of the way, uh, I thought this is this is there's going to be some programmatic uh, suggestion here somewhere, and uh, and and it, it surely did arrive. And uh, and so you basically take us, and I'll have to fast forward here from the 1950s to the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, and and especially the 80s with the the rise of the new Christian right, the the culture wars, the huge worldview, uh, moral, cultural polarization in this country. And, and, and then you come to suggest that, that the biggest issue is, is what uh, sociologists might call the adjudication of, of, of claims. And, uh, and you talk about the problem of religious uh, pluralism. In other words, how can different and incommensurate uh, belief systems find a, a way to operate within a social compact in, in a useful way for the United States? And, and at this point, you, you turn from the, uh, the, the experiment of Reinhold Niebuhr to an even older experiment, and, uh, and and that's the model of Abraham Kuyper. How do we arrive from the 1950s back into the, uh, the the late 19th and early 20th century in the Netherlands? How does that happen? Uh, well, what I was uh, struck by was that in the United States, there had since Protestantism had been dominant or sort of a vaguely uh, a vague Protestantism had been the semi-official religion for America. There was this assumption that there ought to be one religion for the nation. And after the 1960s, it becomes, uh, I think, evident that that's not going to happen. That's, that, 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 that's impossible. But the way dominant American culture deals with that is to say, Fine. We'll just uh, privatize religion. That that, that religion should uh, stay out of, uh, of 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 public life. And uh, to counter that, the Christian right says no. We should go back to really you know, true Christian principles and have uh, you know you know a, a a nation that's truly Christian. And uh, both of those. Are, are are sort of totalistic kinds of views that either you're a Christian nation or you're a secular nation with religions as, as privatized. In the uh, in in the Dutch tradition, uh, Abraham Kuyper uh, in the 19th century uh, set out to uh, try to uh, develop a way in which you could recognize uh, pluralistic religious and non-religious views in in the public domain and uh so he developed what has since come to be called principled pluralism uh where you 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 
recognize that there ought to be uh, Christian voices in society, but then equity demands that there be varieties of Christian voices, maybe some you don't uh, really agree with, and also uh, secular and uh, voices as well, which come in, in, in many uh, varieties. And so I see that as a more fruitful model for dealing uh, with religion in the public sphere today to say the principle ought to be equal representation for all all ideological viewpoints that, I mean it, uh, to, to the extent that you can practically do that and so that various religious points of view should not be uh, just privatized but should be represented uh, in uh, in, 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 in the public discussions, but not with an assumption uh, that uh, we're all going to come to agree on everything, uh, but rather uh, let's find the things we can agree on, let's find the things we disagree on, and then respect respect our differences so that if religious people uh, feel very strongly about certain, uh, certain principles, you're not going to have uh, secularist totalists who are going to say, well, no, you can't say that in our society because everyone in our society ought to believe the same thing about uh, gay rights or uh, right. abortion or whatever. Let me uh, ask you a couple of, uh, of, of just quick response questions here. One is, uh, how do you expect evangelical Christians uh, to respond to your book, and how do you expect secular readers uh, to respond to your argument? Uh, I don't know. Um, I uh, I think... Secular readers will probably say uh, it's unrealistic, uh, or well, I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about that that right. that to, uh, to 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 say definitively. Though I, I, do, I did have one friend who very secular who who read it and said, "Oh, yeah, yeah." He said he agreed with the with the concluding. With, with with the concluding argument, so I just uh, it's it's hard for me to predict, and I don't think that the argument is fully enough developed to uh, on its own convince someone who wasn't uh, leaning in that direction for some reason already. But but I think I, I, I present it more as a direction that I hope some people who can provide leadership in these sorts of areas will uh, think about going and and I don't I don't have I'm not uh, I'm an historian and not sure. a, a social philosopher but, uh, I, but 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 from a historical point of view this seems to me to be the direction to go to recognize where we are that that we are a irreversibly diverse society and then the question is where do we go from here uh, to uh, provide ways of uh, relating religion to the public sphere without uh, thinking that, well, then we have to take it over and, 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 and dominate it? I do think evangelicals, uh, who I hope will read this in, in huge numbers, will come to a better understanding of our own times and of the challenges we face and, and, and have a way of 
of evaluating not only uh, perhaps in a new frame someone like Reinhold Niebuhr, but uh, but also uh, some of the more recent uh, leaders in the Christian right and other things, and and, and sympathetically, but uh, but also critically from the perspective of some distance, look at this and and say, uh, well, 2014, if anything, is a different intellectual moment uh, than it was then. I, in terms of the secular side, I have to tell you, I thought of a conversation that I got to overhear. Uh, in terms of a, uh, a rather contentious meeting in New York among some intellectuals. And, and, and one was making the case that what we need is the principled inclusion of, of responsible religious voices. And, and the response from a, a very prominent law professor was simply, we tried that and, and it, it, it led to, uh, to too much social friction. We, we simply can't let them back in the door because uh, once we do, uh, the uh, the, theolo- the uh, theological battles and the uh, the religious arguments will just uh, take over the public square. Well, I don't think that's the most likely response, but I will tell you that uh, even as you write about the 50s from some distance, it struck me, uh, Professor, that, uh, that in some ways they're still with us. We're still having the same arguments. We're still dealing with the same issues. Different people, different intellectual conditions, but in many ways the, the same issues. They are, they're continuing. And that leads me to a very interesting final question for you. I'm, I, I, I'm always interested in how authors and intellectuals know their own thinking. But I, w- I want to take you back to 1986 and an article you wrote for the Reform Journal entitled, Where Have All the Theologians Gone?, and in this article, you cite Van Harvey at a, uh, a meeting held and sponsored by the Wilson Center there in Washington, who, speaking of the cultural crisis of the 1980s, asked the question, Oh, Reinhold Niebuhr, where are you now that we need you? And you responded at the end of your article by saying, Oh, Abraham Kuyper, where are you now that we need you? So Niebuhr and <laughs> Kuyper have been in your mind for some time now. Uh, well, that's certainly... That's certainly true. I mean, I, I've uh, I, I, I learned a lot from Niebuhr, and I, I, I think that you, one, despite all the theological defects in, in Niebuhr, and I think he was a theological modernist. Nonetheless, I think one can learn a lot about uh, about uh, oneself and and one's own failings and um, humility Same. from uh, from Niebuhr. Uh, so I, I, I value uh, Niebuhr a great a, a great deal in 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 that respect. But then uh, in 1986, uh, I was teaching at, uh, at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, and uh, that's a place that's very much shaped by the tradition of Abraham Kuyper. And 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 so uh, yeah, already then I I, I think I was uh, thinking about a version of that. Of, of that problem, and that's about when I started writing a book called The Soul of the American University, right. in which I reflected on uh, the way in which Protestants had early on run American higher education, and then that Protestant establishment had been replaced by a, a uh, essentially secular establishment, and, and, and so I'm thinking what we need is uh, pluralism in uh higher education that includes religious pluralism of religious perspectives and so rather than expecting people to keep quiet about their religious views in 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 the universities we should uh, be encouraging varieties of religious uh, viewpoints as serious intellectual viewpoints 
Well, I was actually reassured to find that article from 1986 because it affirms one of my own intellectual maxims by which I, I operate and often uh, and often about which I think, and that is this. I believe that the best arguments are almost always long arguments, are arguments that persist over time and are developed uh, over years of, uh, of seasoned thinking, and in your case, so much research and writing and influence. And uh, we were and are now even more in your debt. Professor George Marsden, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Well, thank you very much, and, and thank you for your comments. Well, that was a conversation worth having. And this new book, The Twilight of the American Enlightenment, the 1950s, and The Crisis of Liberal Belief by George M. Marsden is a book worth reading. I've been interested to see some of the secular response to the book. That's why I wanted to talk to Professor Marsden about it. Some of that response has been that uh, it simply is, uh, is, is too much of a reminiscence, uh, too much of a warm-hearted uh, recollection, a, a sense of uh, attempted retrieval of a, an intellectual authority of the past. I actually don't think that's what Professor Marsden is trying to do. I think it's very interesting, and he writes about this in the book. He's trying to understand his own times. Uh, he was he was a young man and a college student uh, in the 1950s, and uh, when he came to his own intellectual understanding, this was the public conversation that was going on. And that's the same reason why I found the book so indispensable, because we're still talking about these issues, and we're still in the midst of the cultural and intellectual crisis that he so well documents from the 1950s. And there is a sense in which it's very easy to go back and, and, and look at the 1950s and say that was a very stable time. And, of course, it was a time of great anxiety uh, related to the, uh, the Cold War and all the rest. But it was also a time in which at least you knew where things were supposed to be and you knew who was supposed to have authority in the culture. And, and there were some very smart, very intellectual people in the culture. And, of course, that didn't save us. That's the other point from this. Uh, the, the problem with Reinhold Niebuhr was not just – for instance, that he had evacuated the Christian faith of its specific doctrinal content and thus of its authority. Uh, the problem is also that uh, it was, if anything, too late for these kind of arguments to have the kind of persuasive power that those who made them thought they might have. You'll recall that section I read uh, from this book in which uh, Professor Morrison says about Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, the candle appears perhaps to burn brightest just about when it's going to burn out. There are all kinds of issues to think about in this book. Cultural influence, intellectual influence in the larger society, the way that issues are adjudicated in the public context, uh, the reality of religious pluralism and, uh, and of divergent and sometimes conflicting religious truth claims, the future of theology without theological content. That is a very chastening realization. The destiny of mainline Protestantism, which in the 1950s appeared to be invincible in terms of its domination of the culture, and then its almost imminent collapse— Perhaps that metaphor of that candle burning brightest before it burns out is apt. But lest there be any sense of evangelical triumphalism, a careful reading of this book will betray the fact that there isn't any easy way forward in terms of the public conversation and the public future. It isn't at all clear that from this book you can gain any real recognition of how evangelicals might be more faithful in the public square. But there are some hints. For instance, George Marsden says that evangelical public intellectuals need to be out there in the public culture making the case. And he also makes the case in a very subtle way that evangelical leaders, intellectual leaders, need to be giving a lot of attention to how to bring along grassroots evangelicals into a better understanding, and perhaps a more substantial biblical understanding of our times and what's demanded of us. I think that's a very important word. 
We need to avoid the kind of triumphalism that could come quite naturally from saying, look what happened to mainline Protestantism, the evangelicals, we're still in the game. But if we look very careful at ourselves, our own churches, denominations, institutions, and all the rest, we have to be aware that sometimes, well, there's that metaphor again, the fire is appearing to burn bright just before it might find itself in danger of being extinguished. We can't take anything for granted in terms of secular history and in terms of any secular providence, but that's why I read this book as a Christian, as an evangelical, and why my ultimate confidence isn't in the American experiment. It's not even in America's unique role in the world, as much as I value that and respect that. It's in a God who rules sovereignly throughout providence and in the affairs of human beings. And that's why, when I read this book, I come to understand we do have a responsibility, a very important one. We have an intellectual responsibility, an inescapable one. But at the end of the day, it doesn't depend on the cogency of our ideas, nor even in the ability of us to gather together or try to construct an intellectual authority. At the end of the day, we have to do what is right and what is faithful. And there is an unquestioned intellectual component to that. But we have to be very clear that when it comes to an enlightenment, even the American enlightenment, even the enlightenment that has tried to preserve so many values, if you try to build an enlightenment upon an essentially secular foundation, that fire is destined to burn out. Again, I commend to you this book, The Twilight of the American Enlightenment, the 1950s, and the Crisis of Liberal Belief by Professor George M. Marsden. Before I close, I want to invite you to join us on the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, March the 14th and 15th, for the renowned Youth Conference. This year, we're seeking to equip this generation's middle and high school-age students with apologetic tools to engage our modern culture in this time. I'll be joined by Sean McDowell, Dan DeWitt, and special musical guest, Flame. For more information, go to events.sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.